0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Ben, did you plan it out that we would be recording this episode about Satanists on Easter Sunday?
1: No, no, no real connection or significance there at all. All right. But, um, how are you doing today, Sarah?
0: Oh, so I think I'm having an allergic reaction to either dust from cleaning the apartment or from cuddling with a friend's pet mouse, but I'm all gunked up in my sinuses. Mm Mm-hmm. So, apologies to listeners. I'm doing everything I can to make it a nice listening experience for you. How are you, Ben?
1: I'm doing just fine. Bastard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've kind of alluded to it, but why don't you tell us what we are watching today?
1: So, today we are watching The Seventh Victim from 1943. The Seventh Victim is Val Lewton's first film without the services of Jacques Tourneur, As director. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trenur had been promoted up to A Pictures at RKO, leaving Luton behind to run his B-movie division. Their next assignment, uh, that they were handed by the studio, was a script by actor-turned-writer Charles O'Neill about an orphan caught up in a series of murders amid the oil wells of California. If the heroine of the story does not discover the killer's identity in time, she will become his seventh victim, hence the title.
0: Okay, so a bit of a film noir origin.
1: Yeah, kind of a murder mystery sort of thing with a a kind of a serial killer mystery identity thing, which feels very similar to what they did in Leopard Leopard Man Man a little bit. However, Luton was not happy with this story, and he brought in Cat People writer DeWitt Bodine to basically just rewrite the script from the ground up so as per usual they were stuck with the seventh victim title but everything else went and they just redid the whole story bodine based the story on his experiences living in new york city Uh, restaurants he frequented businesses he knew and a society of satanists he encountered
0: (laughs) okay did he
1: join them No.
0: No, he just encountered them. Yeah. Like, on the street, like how you run into, like, you know, people handing out, like, Bible pamphlets? I guess. New York City, man.
1: Greenwich Village.
0: Greenwich Village, what are you up to?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, Satanism. (laughs) What about (laughs) it? Why, Why are you giving
0: me that look, Ben?
1: Here's what I kind of know about Satanism, and I feel like this is probably, you know, on par with, like, the average listener's knowledge, I guess. Like, you sort of have, like, at least in my mind, there's, like, three varieties of Satanism. Okay. There's the type that doesn't exist, where it's just a bunch of, like... Fearmongering, like Christian prudes who are looking for the devil under every rock, whether that's in the 1600s claiming that any woman who speaks her mind is a witch, or in the 1980s claiming that people who play Dungeons and Dragons worship the Dark Lord, like that kind of where it's like, oh, there are Satanists. That band is are they're Satanists, and this album is uh, satanic, and where it's like where it doesn't exist. It's sure. it's, it's sort of a, a boogeyman Satanism. The second type of Satanism I'm kind of aware of is, like, 1800s, like, Victorian England occultism, like, ooh, I'm Alistair Crowley (laughs) kind of Satanism, where it's just basically all about, like, willfully misinterpreting old texts to mean something totally different to give you an excuse to have a sex orgy. Oh, Alistair Crowley. And then the third type of Satanism I'm aware of is, like, modern like, Church of Satan, Satanism, where the religion is more about, like, existing as a satire of organized religion, essentially. <laughs> um, where it's like, the, you know, the Church of Satan yeah, yeah. doesn't really believe in Satan. It's about kind of basically pointing out the absurdity of, like, religious institutions in the United States, because it's like, well, now we don't need to pay taxes. So that's kind of what, like, the versions of Satanism I know about. But, like, in 19... 19- 43, you're kind of before the Church of Satan exists. Yeah, and that
0: that became a thing in the 60s.
1: Yeah, and you're after, like, burning witches.
0: Yeah, that was, like, 14 to <laughs> 1700s.
1: Right. So what is Satanism to people in the 1940s, Sarah? Well... What can you tell us about Satanism?
0: So Satanism as, like, theistic occult Satanism is basically an umbrella term describing the belief in Satan as a supernatural being worthy of worship. That is a cop-out answer. Right. So So, you
1: believe Satan exists.
0: And you're like, ah, he's powerful enough that I should worship him. Right. Ask for him to do me some favors. Yeah.
1: You You got halfway into Sunday school where they were like, beware the devil, he's powerful. And you were like, shit. Sweet. Sounds good. Yeah. And you missed like the back half that was like, you know, faith in Jesus will protect you from him or whatever. Like, (laughs) you know.
0: Like you kind of alluded to, Satanism was a charge applied to those doing non-Christian things. Mm -hmm. So for example, witch trials. Also kind of like you alluded to with the boogeyman version of Satanism, calling someone a Satanist or the idea of Satanism is kind of just an umbrella term or lumped together pejorative
1: of someone with non-Christian beliefs. Right, like calling anyone you don't like a communist in the 1950s.
0: Yeah, witch hunting was pretty pretty done by 1943. Witch hunts happened around like the 1450s to 1750s-ish, but by the late 18th century, the invoking of all things occult kind of became the cool rebel thing to do. Right. Um, that's when you get Alistair Crowley in the UK, but this counterculture movement, I guess, was pretty centered in France. Oh, okay. Publication of grimoires, basically magic handbooks, mm-hmm. were popular in 18th century French literature. Uh, for example, the Grimoireum Verum, the Truth Grimoire, and the Grand Grimoire. Both of these reportedly written in the 1400s or 1500s, but published late 1800s, early 1900s.
1: Right. The same way that, like, the Necronomicon is a real thing. (laughs) That's actually from, like, the Middle East, and not just something H.P. Lovecraft made up.
0: So more books and public figures are invoking Satanist acts as, like, the cool thing to do, or the edgy thing to have in your book. Right. Um, For example, Marquis de Sade reportedly defiled crucifixes, Um, And he included the description of a black mass in his 1791 novel, Justine.
1: It's the way to seem like you're edgy, or it's the way to criticize people that you think are too edgy. (laughs) There's no such thing as bad publicity, basically.
0: Yeah. Ceremonial magician Eliphas Levi, who lived from 1810 to 1875, published French occult books in the 19th century, and... Um, I bring him up because his 1855 drawing of Baphomet, basically an alias for Satan or a demon, was adopted for use in the leveyan Church of Satan's sigil of Baphomet, which, if you watch The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, you are familiar with what that looks
1: like. Yeah, it's the big statue in the school.
0: So th- there's there's a couple of big satanic controversies in France, both kind of happening around... Uh, 1890s. Okay, you know, 1880s, 1890s. But first, I'm, I want to talk about Joris Karl Huysman and his novel Laba. Laba. Yeah. Oh. La Ba. La Yeah, L A with the apostrophe thing dash B A S. It translates to "down there" or "the damned." Sure. And it features the author insert character Dertal and his dissatisfaction with Catholicism. And ensuing investigation of occultism, okay. which leads him to learn of and take part in contemporary satanic rituals like a black mass. Future novels featured Dertal having a reconversion to Catholicism, but as L'Aba was published, there was massive controversy. Most understandings of Satanism during this time in France seem to revolve around the Black Mass as the ultimate satanic deed. Gotcha. Which it kind of makes sense with, like, Catholic Mass being a big deal, so the Black Mass being yeah a really big deal.
1: Because Satanism is just reverse Christianity.
0: Basically. And I think part of the reason why invoking the idea of a Black Mass in literature kind of resonated in France is because of a dark scandal in its history involving its aristocracy.
1: Okay.
0: This uh, scandal is known as l'affaire des poisons. So, the affair of poisons.
1: Okay. I wasn't sure if it was going to be the poisons or the fishes, so...
0: No, fish is poisson. <laughs> but poison is poison. Yeah. So, this affair involved French fortune teller and so-called witch, Catherine Mon voisin, a.k.a. La Voisin, who provided fortunes, amulets, poisons, late-term abortions, etc. <laughs> right. And also held black masses alongside Étienne Guibourg. The affair of the poisons involved um, big people in the aristocracy, but kind of most notably Louis XIV's main squeeze, Marquise de Montespan, his main mistress. Okay. Marquise de Montespan used poison that she got from L- La Voisin to poison her m- romantic rivals. But in the midst of this, all of the so-called magic, fortune-telling, and uh, Black Masses that La Voisin did kind of came to light. Mm. During a Black Mass, at least the way that La Voisin and Etienne Guy-Bourg would do, how they would perform it, is you would pray to Satan, and during... The Mass, they would sacrifice a baby, they would slit its throat, and drain its blood into a bowl. And then that bowl would then be used to either be poured on the person who has invoked the Mass or to drink it, so on and so forth, witchcraft, boogie woogie, scary things. And it was never confirmed if the baby had already died, which is a strong possibility given that La Voisson performed late term abortions. Sure. So the Affair of the Poisons was a huge scandal in 1670s France. And so it seems like that's like such a notable case of vaguely satanic witchcraft thing that all of these authors are trying to invoke to make their particular thing edgy.
1: Right. It, it makes sense. It's like the most publicized version of this thing. So it's like a touchstone people would know about. The same way that like everyone who writes like a cult nowadays kind of makes it like the, like, Jamestown cults with, like, the Kool-Aid and stuff. Like, that's just kind of your standard version that you can invoke.
0: So, like I said, layaba was in 1891. We have 1862's Satanism and Witchcraft by Jules Michelet. 1890's The Golden Bow by J.G. Fraser. 1883's Quator Superstitions Populaires de la Gascon, the 14 superstitions popular superstitions in Gascon.
1: That sounds like a book you would see... That sounds like the title of a BuzzFeed article. <laughs> That's really what
0: that sounds like. Um, well, I guess Jean-Francois Blade was uh, ahead of the clickbait game.
1: I slit the throat of this baby and you'll never believe what happened next.
0: <laughs> yeah, all of these invoked Black Mass and the now legend of La Voisson. Now, earlier I mentioned that there were kind of two controversies going on. So for the first one was Huisman's La Ba.
1: Right, so just this book.
0: And then um, the second one features Léo Taxil. Okay. That is a pen name of marie joseph gabrielle antoine Joga paget
1: Yeah, I'd have a pen name too.
0: <laughs> so he was a French writer with anti-Catholic views, and he had published books like... La Bible Amusante, The Amusing Bible, in 1880s. And in similar books, he would point out inconsistencies in the Bible, the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church, and more.
1: So he's basically an internet atheist in, like, the 1880s. Yeah. Like, just one of those guys who goes around being like, hey man, there's no way they could make the earth in seven days.
0: Exactly. That is the perfect way to think of Leo Texel. However, in 1885, he renounced those writings and converted to Catholicism. To underline this change of heart, he would write pamphlets and books denouncing non-Christian organizations like the Freemasons, and he actually Uh wrote an exposé about um, this satanic cult known as the Paladists, based in Charleston, South Carolina, led by real person, U.S. Freemason Albert Pike. And in this exposé, he named a woman Diana Vaughn, and tells of how he helped her convert to Catholicism. These exposés were published in 1891, 1892, so on and so forth. So, five to six years after he converted? Uh Uh-huh. And over the years, um, up until 1895, people were like, wow, man, this this is really great. You know, he made a lot of money uh, to... Catholics who were buying these exposés. Right. But then people started to question if this Diana, the basis of this exposé, was even real. So Texel's like, yeah, let's organize a press conference, I'll I'll bring her out, you can actually meet her in the flesh. At the press conference, he stands up and says, I am Iron Man. (laughs) Right. He reveals that she, his conversion to Catholicism, even the Pallidists... We're all a hoax to get money and to expose the anti-Masonic beliefs in the Catholic Church.
1: Yeah, because the thing about it is the idea that Freemasons are not Christians is not really true. Like, it's just the fact that because the Freemasons were a secret society, so you didn't know what they were doing if you weren't a member. That kind of thing puts people on edge, and the next thing you know, you're saying that they're not, like, Christians. They're actually doing something else in there. <laughs> and if you're doing something else, well, the only thing else is Satan, so they must be Satanists. <laughs> and like, else. Well, like, that's how you describe, that's how you yeah, define yeah, yeah, Satanism yeah, totally, earlier, right? Totally. And so then it's like, oh, they must be Satan- Satanists. And it's like, the Freemasons are basically just, like, a club... Of old, rich dudes who enjoy silly handshakes. Like,
0: <laughs> I don't know, man. Do we want to be talking about the Masons on the, on the show?
1: You can just phone them. Their number's on Google.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, that was the second kind of controversy in, in France during the late 19th century. Um, as far as Satanism as, like, nah, man, they're Satanists. And not just, like, Man or anything else.
1: Or, like, weird cult people trying to get laid.
0: <laughs> Fucking Alistair Crowley! Um. Yes, please. <laughs> he says.
1: <laughs> right this way.
0: Oh, boy. Um, that's about as specific as things get until Ohio in 1948 with the Ophite Cultus Satanus Group. Ohio? Ohio. Okay. Now we've been invoking Alistair Crowley quite a bit this episode. Um we talk about him in a lot of detail in our episode on the magician from 1926. It's episode 17 if you want to go and hear all about that boy, all about that awful fuck boy. Um, have you
1: have you ever met like an edge lord who told you about how like intelligent and special he was and like brought you into, like, his weird group of, like, weird people who do weird things, and then revealed it was all so that he could have sex with you. So that's Aleister Crowley.
0: Yeah. But part of the reason why we keep invoking Aleister Crowley is because he's kind of, like, the figure in late 19th century, early 20th century occultism. Mm-hmm. Um, and o- occultism is this ongoing cultural trend, and... A lot of the claims of Satanism just kind of get thrown on to occultists, regardless of whether they are actually worshipping Satan or not.
1: Right. I mean, it doesn't help when you're starting up your New Age Wiccan society in 1940s England and you decide that, like, one of your major figures of worship is going to be the horned god. Yeah. Like, you're that just is... asking for trouble.
0: Yeah. Um, so has been just diluted by the mid to late 1940s. You'll have more specific sex or denominations popping up, like Gardnerian Wicca in 1945 onwards, or LaVeyan Satanism in the 60s. Um, now, for 1943's Seventh Victim, like I believe they just invoke the title Paladists.
1: Yeah, the Satanist group in this movie are called Paladists.
0: I feel like they are just in general invoking the idea of, like, occultic ceremonial magic, mm-hmm. something like that. Secret similar, society types. Yeah, similar to the Satanists we saw in 1934's Black Cat.
1: hmm Yeah. Now, that being said, one thing we do know about Val Luton is he is stringent about his research.
0: That is very true.
1: So, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how these, like, paladists are portrayed. Um, the name paladus refers to Pallas which is an alternate name for Athena, and therefore invokes, like, knowledge and wisdom and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, with Jacques Tourneur sort of out of reach, uh, Luton promoted his editor, Mark Robeson, to direct. So the seventh victim would be his first directing job on a feature film.
0: That's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Editors usually make pretty good directors, hey?
1: Um... Yeah, there's there's generally, like, a pretty decent conversion ratio, I guess.
0: Track record?
1: Yeah. So Mark Robson was born in Montreal in 1913. He attended the University of California, Los Angeles, and he found work initially in the prop department at 20th Century Fox. At RKO, he began training as a film editor. Uh, his first job was serving as Robert Wise's assistant on Citizen Kane, a role he reprised on The Magnificent Ambersons. His first film as the lead editor was 1942's The Falcon's Brother, followed by the first three Val Luton pictures and the final Orson Welles RKO film Journey into Fear. So, with Robeson now directing, working as Robeson's editor on the picture was John Lockhart, was an editor of short films since 1932, who had finally moved to feature films in 1942. And those feature films were almost exclusively westerns until The Seventh Victim, which was his sixth feature film editing job in the year he'd been doing it. Returning from Cat People to handle the cinematography was Nicholas Musaraka, and music was once again by Roy Webb. Famously, Webb's score for this film is thought to be the only score of the Golden Age Hollywood period to end in a minor key. Interesting. Tom Conway stars, reprising his role as Dr. Judd from Cat People. The character in the movie references treating Irina, but since she killed him at the end of Cat People, the seventh victim therefore must take place during. Cat People, (laughs) which is reasonable since Cat People's story unfolds over a fairly lengthy period of time. True. Jean Brooks returns from The Leopard Man in this film's title role. This is the role for which Brooks is probably most remembered today.
0: Yeah, definitely when I hear her name, I think of her um, particular hairstyle here.
1: Mm -hmm. During filming, uh, Brooks separated from her husband, Director Richard Brooks, she had begun drinking very heavily at this time, uh, as alcoholism was something that ran in her family. She divorced Brooks in 1944, but continued to act at RKO, uh, including in the non-horror Val Luton film Youth Runs Wild. However, her alcoholism worsened. She began appearing at premieres and public events drunk and disheveled, and several times she actually passed out in public. In 1946, she was dismissed from RKO, and her final film was the 1948 indie B-picture, Women in the Night. She retired from acting and married a Marine in 1946. This marriage lasted about 10 years, during most of which her husband was away at various army bases. They were both heavy drinkers, and the marriage collapsed in 1956. Jean Brooks passed away in 1963 at the age of 47, after being admitted to hospital for her cirrhosis, her death certificate noted that her body was extremely deficient in nutrients and that she had been potentially uh, like nutrient deficient for the last 15 years of her life. She was buried at sea and there was no obituary.
0: Well, wh- why?
1: Presumably because there was like no one to request one or provide information about her for the newspapers. 27 years after her death, her ex-husband Richard Brooks put out an ad in The Hollywood Reporter asking for information on her whereabouts. He would pass away in 1992 with no knowledge of her death.
0: Oh my god, that's so sad.
1: Yeah, very sad story. So appearing in her first film role ever as the sister of Brooks' character is 21-year-old actress Kim Hunter. Hunter would gain fame when she originated the role of Stella Kowalski in the original 1947 Broadway version of A Streetcar Named Desire, a role she would reprise in the 1951 film version, winning an Academy Award.
0: Yeah, she's really good in that.
1: She was blacklisted as a communist sympathizer in the 1950s, but her career was rehabilitated with the support of writer Rod Serling, and she began appearing in movies and TV through the 1960s, most prominently as the chimpanzee scientist Dr. Zira in the first three Planet of the Apes films.
0: Oh, sweet. That's cool. I didn't know that. She's really good in that.
1: Yeah, she's great. Zira's great. Yeah, so this is her first movie ever. She's 21 years old. Wow. Her final film role was in the year 2000, and she passed away in 2002. So the, um, I guess you could say romantic lead in this movie uh, is Hugh Beaumont, a 34-year-old actor from Kansas who had begun acting in film in 1940, appearing in minor parts in over two dozen movies before appearing in The Seventh Victim. However, he is probably best known today for his 1957 to 1963 role as Ward Cleaver, family patriarch on the sitcom Leave It to Beaver. So much of The Seventh Victim's cast are returning from past Val Luton pictures, such as Isabel Jewell, who was the fortune teller from Leopard Man, Uh, Ben Bard, who was the police chief from that film, and Elizabeth Russell, the unforgettable Serbian woman from Cat People. Nice. So as Robeson and Lockhart brought the film into post-production, they discovered that they had a major problem. The film was too long.
0: Oh, right, because one of the rules is that it has to be like under 90 minutes or something?
1: Under 75 minutes. 75 minutes or less was the strict directive from RKO for these Luton pictures. So, to get it down to that length, Robeson and Lockhart had to cut four scenes from the movie. The Seventh Victim would premiere on August 21st, 1943. It was the first Luton film to be a box office failure. Oh no. Theatergoers were reported as walking out, and theater owners joked that they were the eighth victim. Contemporary critics praised the film's look, atmosphere, and performances, but severely panned the storyline which was generally felt by everyone at the time to be incoherent.
0: Maybe because they had to cut those four scenes?
1: That's exactly why it's incoherent, yes. Um, It is generally understood that the blame for the narrative's disjointed nature are the deleted scenes.
0: Do you know how long it was originally before those cuts?
1: Probably like 90 minutes. Okay. The New York Times quipped that the film might make more sense if you played it backward. (laughs) then you'd hear satan speaking to you (laughs) right it was however more successful in england where critics noted the homoerotic undertones in the story Ooh. modern critics uh praise the seventh victim similar to other luton horror pictures it is available on dvd as part of the val luton horror collection
0: all folks like for this one and the other luton films and the future films to come get that box set and you can watch along with us you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the seventh victim from 1943 directed by mark robeson
1: see you on the other side everybody before we get into the discussion i would just like to give a brief Uh, Content warning that the following discussion of the film The Seventh Victim will contain a discussion of suicide. Uh, So if that's a topic that uh, you're not uh, comfortable with hearing a lot about right now, uh, skip this episode. Pick something out from the library. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Seventh Victim from 1943, directed by Mark Robeson. Sarah, what did you think of this one?
0: It was interesting. Um, it's a pretty good movie. I think the only fault that I can find with it is its editing. Mm-hmm. Some shots were inexplicably too close or too quick, and some were too long, and it was just odd, odd editing choices. But everything else, technically, with performances, with the story, uh, I thought was very good.
1: Yeah, there's, um... A lot of those, I'd noticed those weird editing things as well. I think part of that has to do with the re editing that happened with this picture that I I mentioned in the um, intro. There's one shot that uh, is an artificial close up Mm -hmm. where they've uh, taken a section of a shot and blown it up to be a close up because they needed a close up there and didn't have one. So the film is like way grainier, like as if you were zooming in on a photo. Uh, you know, things like that. And you, and you, yeah, you definitely noticed them throughout the movie.
0: Yeah. What did you think?
1: I really liked this movie. Yeah. I responded to it. So I'll give the plot summary. And then when I'm done, I'll talk about, uh, what was cut. Cool. Sounds good. So we start in a Catholic girls school that is also the mansion of the magnificent Ambersons. And uh, You know,
0: when the family sold Sold everything. the mansion. They
1: sold it t- to be this Catholic girls' school, right.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense.
1: Mm-hmm. And our lead character is Mary Gibson, who is at the oldest 18, if she's still in this, like, Catholic girls' school. And there's a problem, which is uh, her tuition is paid for by her older sister, Jacqueline Gibson. And Jacqueline owns a cosmetics company uh, called... La Sagresse in New York and the payments for Mary's tuition have stopped coming. Uh, so the school's going to have to basically get rid of Mary or Mary will have to start like working at the school as a teacher with some of the younger girls in order to like pay off her own tuition to keep attending. And Mary goes, well, why can't I just like go to New York and find my sister? Because like I'm worried, too, you know, about what's happened. And the headmistress is cool with that. She's willing to give Mary an advance to go to New York. And our first bit of weirdness in this movie happens when one of the teachers who was in this meeting, like, grabs Mary and is like, don't come back. Like, whether you find your sister, whether you don't find your sister, don't come back here. I was like you. I didn't have the money. I started teaching. Now I'm still a teacher.
0: I came back. Yeah. And I'm stuck here now.
1: Yeah. So, right away, the movie tells you, uh, avoid getting trapped in academia. <laughs>
0: if only I'd seen this sooner!
1: <laughs> so, Mary heads to New York, and the first place she goes is to La Sagresse to speak with uh, Mrs. Reddy, who is, like, the business manager of this cosmetics company. And she's quite shocked to learn that Jacqueline had sold the business to Mrs. Reddy some time ago, and Mrs. Reddy hasn't seen her since. Uh, Mary talks to an employee of La named Francis, who tells her that she saw Jacqueline at an Italian restaurant uh, recently, and that's the last time she saw her. So Mary heads over to this restaurant and asks the owners about her sister and eventually manages to get out of them that Jacqueline had come there, rented a room above the restaurant, never used it, Just, like, locked it, walked away. That was about it. So Mary kind of pleads with them to let her open the room and see what's inside. And they do, and what's inside is a chair, and above that chair, a noose hanging from the rafters.
0: Yeah. That's, um, maybe the second weird, uh, little shocking type of thing to happen in the movie.
1: Yeah. So, knowing this now, um, leads Mary to finally go to the police go to the missing persons department and, like, fill out a report and all this stuff. And then she gets uh, poached by a private investigator uh, named Irving August, who wants to try and, like, solve the case for her. And Mary, you know, politely explains, like, I don't have any money, so no. Uh, But uh, Mr. August does give her, like, one good tip, which is, like, check the morgue. So Mary goes down to the morgue, which isn't fun and they tell her that someone named Mr. Gregory Ward who's a lawyer was inquiring after her sister as well. So that's sort of her next stop. She goes to see Ward and uh Ward explains that he and Jacqueline were in love. Uh he doesn't know where Jacqueline is either. And he also ex- tries to explain to Mary that like Jacqueline like wasn't well mentally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um that her sister was kind of a strange person who kind of lived in her own little world uh this comes up when mary asks about the chair and the noose and gregory says like no she wasn't suicidal she just liked the idea of having the option ready if she wanted to it was important to her that she that she said that life was only worth living if you could decide when to end it mary's kind of you know a little bit distressed by all this, she heads back to where she's staying at a hotel and August meets up with her and he's decided to basically like take on her case pro bono because he's interested. And this is because another private eye warned August off the case. So I think like this kind of struck his interest. August tells Mary that he checked around La Agres and uh, got, like, a tour of the place pretending to be a health inspector, but there was one room they wouldn't let him into. So, of course, they're going to go there uh, in the middle of the night and check it out. August actually doesn't want to, uh, but Mary kind of eggs him on. So they break into the place, and the room that they need to get into is at, like, the end of the hall, and it's night, so all the lights are off, so it's just in the inky blackness, And both of them are too afraid to walk forward and check and go into the darkness. And finally, Mary, like, eggs August on to do it. And he walks into the darkness. And then the night watchman shows up, starts looking around. So now, like, Mary can't stay where she is. She has to go. So she goes into the darkness. And that's when August walks out. And he's not talking. He's not saying anything. And then he just collapses over dead because he's been stabbed. So Mary freaks out and runs and gets on the subway, uh, and just kind of rides the subway for a very long time, back and forth, up and down, uh, because she's a little traumatized, and at one point, the subway passes by the stop she got on at, and these guys get on, who look like they're coming from a party, they look like three drunk guys, two guys sort of on either side of their friend, holding up their drunk friend, but at one point during the subway ride, the drunk friend, like his head kind of rolls, and Mary sees it's August. And so she gets really worried, and she leaves that car on the subway to go find, like, the transit cop or whatever. It's the 40s. I'm not quite sure what he is. Uh, And bring him over. It's not, like, shouldn't the conductor be driving the damn car? Anyways, so she grabs this guy. They go back to check, and these dudes are gone. Meanwhile, Dr. Lewis Judd from Cat People has gone to see Gregory Ward. He's Jacqueline's psychiatrist, as it turns out. Jacqueline has very severe depression. Uh, We learn that she basically has been trying to find a way to feel a sense of happiness, and she just can't, uh, which has led her to try all sorts of things. Judd comes to Ward, basically saying, Hey, Jacqueline needs money. I know where she is. I'm not going to tell you where she is, but she needs money. Ward is understandably suspicious of this and finally like gives Judd like 45 bucks instead of the 100 that he asked for he also tells Judd like hey Jacqueline's sister is in town like maybe even if you don't want to tell me where Jacqueline is like maybe go find her in the meantime Mary has been working as a kindergarten teacher because this has been taking a little bit longer than the amount of money she had to stay at a hotel was and so she got this job with Ward's help So Judd goes down to the kindergarten to find Mary and tell her, like, hey, I can take you to Jacqueline. He takes her to, like, another hotel somewhere else in town, up to uh, this hotel room. They go in, and Jacqueline isn't there. Judd freaks out at this. He specifically says something along the lines of, she's left me here to deal with them by myself, and he seems not cool with that, and he just leaves Mary there all by herself. Which, you know, not cool, Dr. Judd. But we, if you've seen Cat People, you know that Dr. Judd isn't that great of a dude. <laughs> Mary goes to leave, and that's when suddenly Jacqueline's just there in the doorway. And she, like, puts her finger up to her lips, like, shh, and then just runs off. And Mary follows, and Jacqueline's just gone. So she kind of goes back up to the room, and there's two guys waiting there looking for Jacqueline, who turn out to be private eyes who have been hired by Ward, and it turns out Ward is actually Jacqueline's husband. So Mary's a little bit upset that Ward didn't tell her this. Um, they are having a discussion about it at the Italian restaurant and get the attention of Jason Hogue, who is a starving artist-poet type who frequents this restaurant.
0: Lives above it.
1: Yes. and um, This is the
0: same Italian restaurant where Jacqueline rented the room, Yes, by the way.
1: It's also where Mary's currently living. Um, because, you know... I, I, this is a place I know. So Jason kind of inserts himself into the situation and says like, I'll find your sister for you. And this is because Jason actually knows Judd and he takes them to a party he knew Judd would be at full of, you know, shitty rich people. And some really interesting things happen at this party. One thing is Mary runs into this like kind of rich socialite seeming woman Uh, who tells Mary that she knew Jacqueline. She specifically says that she and Jacqueline were intimate. And uh, it's at this party where Jason confronts Judd. We learn that Jason and Judd don't really like each other because basically Jason suspects that Judd does not have Like, his patient's best interests at heart. Specifically, his female patient's best interests at heart. He was in love with this woman long ago who went to go see Judd, and then he never saw that woman again. And if you've seen Cat People, you do know that Judd is, like, totally willing to take advantage of his female patients. So this all kind of tracks. Hogue kind of does some investigating on his own. He goes to the library and figures out, like, what books... Mrs. Reedy and, like, Dr. Judd have been reading, which is, like, a weird thread to pick up on, but all right, Hoag, it turns out to be useful because they've all been reading the same books on Satanism. And he brings this to Mary and explains that, like, this is all connected to a group called the Pilatists. So knowing this, um, Mary goes to La Sigresse, uh to ask Francis about Mrs. Reedy. Sort of after asking some questions and getting some, you know, pretty vague brush-off answers from Francis, Mary leaves, and we stay with Francis and Mrs. Reedy, who basically have a she-knows-too-much kind of conversation. Then we get the shower scene from Psycho. where Sort of. Sort of. It's, it's, it's eerily similar uh, up to a certain point. Mary is in the shower. She hears the door open. And this shadow approach, the um, shower curtain. And it's Mrs. Reedy who has come to warn Mary to, you know, stop asking questions and get out of town.
0: Go back to school.
1: And what's kind of neat about this scene is we never see Mrs. Reedy's face during all of it. She's just the shadow on the shower curtain. Then we follow Mrs. Reedy to, like, a meeting of the Pilatists. So we see that Mrs. Reedy's a member, we see that Francis is a member, we see that uh, a woman named Natalie Cortez, who was at the party with uh, Dr. Judd and everybody, she's a member, along with a few other persons. Uh, there's like a lead dude named Mr. Brunn. Um, who
0: has a voice who sounds like he's right out of the Twilight Zone. Yes. Uh, like he, it's eerie. Like it's not Rod Serling, but it, it's It eerie. could be,
1: yeah. He was the uh, police chief in The Leopard Man. Hmm and now we kind of finally get an explanation of the plot. So the plotists are this long-running, long-standing satanic group, but they have some very specific rules. One of them is non-violence,
0: which you know, okay, I can get behind that. I get
1: it. It also makes sense if you're a satanic group like cuz what's going to draw attention to you by in terms of like witch hunters? <laughs> it's going to be violence. The second rule that we hear about is if someone betrays the group, they have to die. So the group is having some difficulties because they believe that Jacqueline has betrayed the group because apparently she told Dr. Judd about the group in her like sessions dealing with her depression. The justification of the film's title is that six people in the past have betrayed the Satanists and died. And so Jacqueline is the seventh. She apparently joined the group basically out of, like, an attempt to try and get some, like, excitement into her life, to just, like, feel something. It seemed like a edgy thing to do, I guess. So now the group's like, well, how do we get her to die but not be violent? Like, they're trying to reconcile what that contradiction means. Mary, meanwhile, has gone to Jason, uh, the poet, to say goodbye, because she is intending to get out of town. Uh, Jason's like, mm-hmm. Like, don't do that. And they have this conversation, and basically what the movie starts to inform the audience about through a series of different conversations is that Jason loves Mary, but knows that Ward has also fallen in love with Mary, but also knows that, like, Ward can't tell her that because Ward is Jacqueline's husband, and this is a very difficult situation about all of this. Uh, Mary, in explaining why she has to leave explains that she has been told by Mrs. Reddy, uh, and this was during the shower scene when she was told to get out of town, that Jacqueline is a murderess, because it was Jacqueline who killed Mr. August and the pallidists who had to dispose of the body and saw Mary on the subway. Mary tells Jason, and Jason tells Ward and Ward tells Dr. Judd, because they all agree that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, if Jacqueline's a murderess, maybe she should stop hiding, and we should go to the police and, like, deal with things like responsible adults. So Judd takes them to Jacqueline's new hiding spot, and we finally get Jacqueline, like, as a character. And she sort of explains her point of view. She explains joining the... Pilatus as kind of like an attempt to get some thrill into her life. She talks about her depression and and all of this. She talks about how uh, she told Dr. Judd about them, how they think she's betrayed them, and how apparently their first idea was to just lock Jacqueline in a room at La Segresse until she kind of just killed herself. And that was the room August walked into, And Jacqueline had been in there for, like, quite some time at that point and was pretty, like, at the end of her rope and just, like, had a pair of scissors in her hand and just stabbed him out of, like, kind of crazy panic. Everyone kind of agrees, like, okay, um, well, I'm sure that if we explain that to the judge, like, it'll be fine. And uh, they get Jacqueline to kind of agree to stay with Mary at the um, rooms above the Italian restaurant. Now, Mary's still going to work, Uh, at this kindergarten at this time which means she has to leave Jacqueline alone uh, during the day which does seem like a bad idea and it turns out to be because the plotists get Jacqueline and take her back to their headquarters and uh, they try to basically pressure her to kill herself they basically put her in a chair put like a glass of poison in front of her and then they all just stand around and stare at her And basically, we're just going to have this staring contest until you drink the poison. And they just try to pressure. And they do this for, like, the whole day. Finally, Francis, like, just breaks down and, like, swats the poison away and is like, get out of here, Jacqueline. And this is because Francis, uh, as she explains in her breakdown, loves Jacqueline and, like, loves her too much and, like, you know, whatever. Don't let them do it, Jacqueline. And there was, like, an earlier line in the movie, too, where Francis just, like, offhandedly mentioned, like, she loves Jacqueline. And, I mean, here in 2019, it's pretty obvious what this is, but I think the movie probably got away with it at the time because it's just the word, like, I love, I love her, right? It could, which, hey, that can mean anything. Anyways, so Jacqueline runs into the night, and uh, this is where we get our Luton bus because she gets startled by, like, a dog rummaging through some trash cans. And as she's sort of running through the streets at night, she gets increasingly paranoid, which turns out to be totally justified, because there's a man following her, and he's catching up, and he gets pretty close to, with a switchblade, like, killing her, but she manages to get saved just in time by some actors coming out the back door of a theater, and she manages to get away and get with these actors to, like, a bar and slip uh, out of the clutches of this man. Meanwhile, um, Mary has discovered that, like, Jacqueline's missing again, and Judd and Jason decide to go to the Pilatists and be like, hey, where's Jacqueline? So they confront the Pilatists, who they they basically just have a discussion about the nature of good and evil. Uh, (laughs) The Pilatists sort of counter everything that Jason and Judd have to say to them by saying, like, hey, can you offer any proof that good is better than evil? Like, how dare you come in here and judge our religion, basically. And uh, the proof that Judd offers is the Lord's Prayer, which, okay. and Well, because
0: the two have reconciled. Yes. Judd and Jason have now gotten over whatever thing they had between them because they forgave each other, and the Lord's Prayer has a thing of, like, Forgive, forgive people for their
1: trespasses, trespasses. Yep. which is the whole thing that these plotists can't do, right? They can't forgive yep. Jacqueline. Judd and Jason come to an understanding when Judd tells Jason like, yeah, the woman you loved who disappeared, like disappeared because I had to commit her to a mental asylum. After this confrontation, um, Jacqueline has made it back to the apartment building above the restaurant. And she runs into another one of the tenants, uh, Mimi, who's played by Elizabeth Russell. And basically Mimi has had no role in this movie Up until now, uh, other than every time we are on, like, this floor of the apartment building, we just see her, like, exit her room, cough a bunch, and go into another room. And so now talking to Mimi, um, you know, if you are a pretentious artsy person, like Val Luton, someone who's named Mimi who coughs a lot, like, oh, this is a La Boheme reference. She probably (laughs) has TB and is going to die. They don't really outright say that, but she is definitely dying and she bumps into Jacqueline and they have a conversation about death, about how Mimi is afraid of death and Jacqueline has always wanted to die. Mimi tells Jacqueline she's basically going to go have a night on the town and do all the things she used to do before she was sick and then she's going to die. Mimi kind of goes into her room to go freshen up and Jacqueline goes into room number seven, which is the room with the noose and the chair. And as Mimi is leaving the apartment building to go out, we just hear the thud of the chair falling over. And then the movie just ends.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, there's other parts that Ben didn't really mention, like intercutting between um, the paladists hounding Jacqueline in the chair to get her to drink poison and that being intercut with Jason and Judd forgiving each other, like, the ways that the movie is cut feel very counterintuitive. The way Ben just kind of explained it makes a lot more sense than how the film's actually put together.
1: Yeah, I mean, when giving a plot summary, that's sort of one of the things I'm trying to do is is make it easy for someone to follow, right? Which Mm. is not what the movie is doing, for sure.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like, between um, Jacqueline running into Mimi, we get intercut with Mary and... Ward, like, explaining that they know that they love each other, but they can't because Jacqueline.
1: Yeah, and that's the last time we see either of those characters, which is super weird. Like, it's just Ward saying, like, hey, I have something to tell you, insisting that Mary not look at him while he tells her this. Says, like, I love you. She's basically like, I know. And Ward's like, I shouldn't have told you that. And that's basically the scene. And that's the last time we see them.
0: Yeah. So what was cut out?
1: The first is when Mary has gotten her job as the kindergarten teacher, Gregory goes to visit her there. And, uh, in that conversation, Mary tells Gregory that it would be easier if Jacqueline was dead because then Mary could basically give up the search and just like continue on with her life. And, um, you can tell that this scene was cut because in the scene where Judd comes to see her at the kindergarten, uh, one of the other teachers tells Mary, aren't you the popular one? You have a visitor again. Mm-hmm. There is another scene where Judd is trying to figure out, like, what hold the Palladists have on Jacqueline. And he goes to visit Natalie Cortez, who is the person who, I think it's her house that they meet at, because when it's the party, she's the one who's, like, letting people in and stuff. And he pretends to be interested in joining the group. The two discuss philosophical matters, mainly the notion that if good exists, evil has to exist, and one has to be free to choose between the two. Uh, Cortez says that she became a paladist because life has betrayed us, we have found there's no heaven on earth, so we must worship evil for evil's sake. There is a scene where Judd makes a second visit to Cortez, indicating that he wishes to join the group. In this conversation, Judd unintentionally reveals that Jacqueline is staying with Mary at the apartment building. And this is how the paladists know where Jacqueline is to come and get her. Uh, Because in the movie as it is, it's just not explained how they knew where she was.
0: You can kind of infer that they were tracking her or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's it's... not a necessary scene, so I see why that one was cut.
1: There was a final scene that was supposed to come after Jacqueline's suicide, uh, where Mary, uh, Gregory, and Jason meet at uh, the Italian restaurant. And uh, Gregory and Mary go off together leaving Jason, standing before the restaurant's mural of Dante, uh, and he says, I'm alive, yet every hope I had is dead. Death can be good, death can be happy. If I could speak like Cyrano, then perhaps you might understand. And mm-hmm. that was the original end of the movie. Val Lewton's, uh son, in an interview, talked about that they cut that scene specifically because they thought it was like much more powerful to just end on Jacqueline killing herself. But it causes kind of a problem watching the movie because that scene wasn't supposed to be the last scene. So when they cut the scene that came after, they didn't have like a lot of room for the previous scene. So the movie just seems to end abruptly. Ideally, if you were doing that on purpose, you would kind of hold the shot a little bit longer to just give the audience like a moment to realize what's happened, but they couldn't go back and reshoot that scene. Um, So you're just kind of left with this weird truncated feeling.
0: So I think hearing what was cut, I don't think the cuts actually impact the understanding of this story. Mm-hmm. A little bit with that first one where Greg visits Mary at the kindergarten, but not not really. That's really just a thematic underlining. Um, and the me- thing
1: about the pallidus knowing where she was, which, as you said, you can kind of put together, but it is a plot element.
0: I think what makes this movie perhaps difficult for people to follow is because of two reasons. One, as I mentioned earlier, is the editing. You said, um, John Locker, this was like his sixth time editing a film Mm -hmm. and it was like his first year editing. Yes. I think you can see his, um, I guess I'll say amateur editing.
1: It's, it's, it's surprising though, because the director's an editor. So you would think he would think about how to direct for the edit. I think the effect that the deleted scenes have isn't so much that what was in them was necessary, but that taking them out creates these weird, like, jumps in the movie or, like, gaps you can feel because they don't have a choice other than to, like, edit from one thing to another. Um, Like, one thing that I noticed, for example, there's a scene where it's Jason and Mary in Jason's room, and they call Greg to like come over, and then it fades out and fades in, and we're still in the room, and Greg's there. And in like a normal movie, what you want to do in that kind of case is cut to another scene, and then cut back. Mm -hmm. Not cut from the same location to the same location. So I think that's something that happens when you delete scenes last minute, is you then have nothing to cut to.
0: Sure. I guess it's just some of the choices that were made. Like, getting certain close-ups for a single... Word or line that happens quite frequently, and I don't understand what information is conveyed in that. I, like, think there was, I, I think there's just certain choices made with editing that unintentionally disrupt understanding of the film.
1: I wonder how much of that is, like, ironically, like a 1943 version of "I'll Fix It" in post. Sure. Like, like for example, the close-up thing that you're talking about. Like, there was a certain idea in the 40s that you went to a close-up for specific lines or emotions to, like, underline their importance, right? And I can sort of see... These movies were done on such a low budget and such a short schedule, and it's Robson's first time, so he doesn't have the knowledge, probably, to, like, how to work that efficiently. So I can certainly imagine being on the day and shooting the master shot and being like, you know, there's a close-up on the shot list, and it's like, we just don't have time, we can't get to it. And Robson's like, oh, but I really wanted that close-up. But he's like, wait... I'm an editor. I know that, like, in the edit bay, I can just blow up that shot and make it pretend to be a close-up or whatever. Like, weird things like that where it's, like, him getting in his own way because he thinks he can fix all his problems by editing them.
0: Yeah. And I think the other reason why this movie can be a little hard to follow is because the structure of it is a mystery. Right. We have Mary trying to solve it, and everyone else knows more information than her. So we get a feeling of like, we don't really know what's going on until things are fully explained. But I think the movie's also dealing with things that I can't fully talk about mm-hmm. outright. And I mean that in both the uh, lesbian relationship as well as the mental illness, suicide uh, discussions.
1: Yeah. I mean, the movie's astonishingly frank for 1943. One of my notes is I have no fucking clue how this movie got made. Yeah. But you're right that it still can't be as out in the open as it probably wants to be. There's a feeling I get watching this movie, you know, it's, it's utterly unlike, in my opinion, any movie we've watched for Scream scene thus far. Every single character has like so much going on with them. Yeah, Watching the movie, every character felt like they were personifying some different aspect of like the pain and bitterness of the writer. Like, I could feel, like, Val Luton's like, personal demons coming out, voiced by different characters in the movie. And everyone, yeah. everyone is kind of bitter. Everyone is kind of regretful. Everyone kind of has these problems. And it just feels like this is a film that's trying to work through a lot of shit. And it's maybe too much shit at once. <clears throat> you know, one question I had was, like, by the end of the movie, who are the audience's sympathies supposed to be with? Because for me, it's it's Jacqueline, but like that's so weird for a 1940s Hollywood movie.
0: Yeah, probably your sympathies are supposed to be with both Mary and Jacqueline.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's why I I feel like I understand why, but I think I would have preferred to have kept the scene where Greg visits Mary at the kindergarten, where she says it would be easier if Jacqueline was just dead, because mm-hmm. that makes the ending. That makes the message that Val Luton has here of death can be good actually feel good, rather than just like a, well, I guess now Mary and Greg can get together, but, oh, that kind of feels icky to kind of say that when the film isn't quite able to say it either.
1: Or you could have kept the scene at the ending of, that shows Mary and Greg getting together, right? Because yeah. now we just have this weird, unfinished sort of thought With them being like, well, we love each other, but we can't be together. Like, that's the last time we see them, right? Yeah. So, it's... it's. Well, I understand the impulse to say, like, well, you should end the film with the suicide, because that's the strongest thing to put the audience on. But, like, it's 1943, dude. Like, maybe give us the little happy ending at the end or something. (laughs) Like, I don't know.
0: What I thought was kind of neat here is, um, even despite its editing, um, I feel like the whole movie does come together. I mm-hmm. think the story is there and I think the thematic elements are conveyed through both performances and the cinematography, mm-hmm. both with lighting, mise-en-scene, everything, um, and these elements of melancholy, nihilism, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's kind of interesting how there's, like, feeling of um, film noir grittiness yeah. here with a lived-in city. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of extras in this movie and not extras in the same way of like the curious case of Dr. Crespi.
1: Right. Where there's just like a lot of bit parts for no reason.
0: Yeah. But there's just like a lot of people like walking by or, or whatever. It feels like this is a false city. Yeah. It doesn't feel like 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 the town
1: in Leopard Leopard Man Man. where there was like five people who live in the whole town. And a single street. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This felt like Manhattan Mm -hmm. where it's set in. I think for a first-time director to be trying to include all of those elements and have, like, all these people on on sets and stuff, I I think Mark Robeson did a very good job trying to handle all of that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I think all of the performances are very good. You know, Gene Brooks is great as Jacqueline. Kim Hunter is great as Mary. Like, all the cinematography is great. Like, on a technical level, there's a lot that's really good that's happening here. Um, Speaking to you know, this kind of disconnect that you identified with, like, following the movie's story, there was a couple of interesting things I picked up about that, watching it. Like, some some thoughts I had. One was, it takes a really long time for the horror to kick in. Yeah. For a long time, this is basically, like, a mystery film noir thriller, but it does get very horror movie by the end. And the thing that I think does that is, for the first significant portion of the movie, Mary is our protagonist, Mm -hmm. and it's a mystery. But once we actually meet Jacqueline, Mary kind of fades away, and Jacqueline becomes our protagonist, and then it's a horror movie for the rest of the time. And I think the story would have been easier to follow, and the horror would have been more successfully conveyed consistently if Jacqueline had been our main character all the way through, and we were seeing the story from her perspective. But I think the reason they didn't do that is, if you imagine that version of the story, it would have been way too close to Cat People. Because it Mm -hmm. would have been the woman with the depression and seeing the psychiatrist and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think it would have been a retread, right? But I do think maybe it would have made everything a lot clearer about the themes.
0: I see where you're coming from. I think, like, I I agree that it would make it a bit too similar to Cat People. Um, And I think it would also be talking about mental illness in the same way as Cat People does, but just not as effectively. Mm -hmm. I think the way that it talks about mental illness here is really interesting.
1: Yeah, showing it from the perspective of, like, everyone else in this person's life before we see them is, like, a really interesting way, because we can see how, like, Mary reacts to it just kind of being in the dark. We can see how Greg reacts to it being this person who, like, loves Jacqueline, but, like... I don't think really understands her, you know, from Judd's point of view. You know, it's, it's just very interesting. Um, the depiction of Jacqueline's depression and her suicidal ideation and all of that felt really spot on mm-hmm. to me. Um, and the movie handles these topics, you know, this idea of wanting to die because you can't feel anything in life. And also the topic of, like, Satanism as a religion, as, like, an alternative thing. You know, what's interesting about the Satanists here is we don't see a black mass. We don't see a pentagram. We don't see dudes in, you know, frickin' Dungeon Master robes saying, (laughs) you know, backwards words to invoke demons or whatever. These are all just regular people in, like, regular clothes who just meet at, like, a friend's basement and, um, you know, just have conversations. And... It's, it's treating all these topics with a maturity that feels really rare for 1943 America.
0: And especially with, like, the reputation that horror movies have for dealing with topics like these. Mm-hmm. The depiction here reminded me of this article that was going around a month or so ago from Outline, titled, I'm Not Always Very Attached to Being Alive.
1: Yeah, the idea of passive suicidal ideation, the idea that you're not going, like, I'm going to commit suicide, so I'm going to, like, go get myself a gun and I'm going to do the thing, and, like, you know, don't try to stop me, Smee. Like, there's that idea. Um, but that article was talking about the idea of, like, I don't really, I'm not going to do it, but I just kind of feel like it all the time. And that's kind of what Ward's trying to talk about when he says that he didn't think, he wasn't worried when Jacqueline got the room with the chair and the noose. Like, he was, he, you know, he, he understood that there was something wrong with Jacqueline, but he didn't think she, she would ever actually kill herself. And even when, you know, the Pilates are with Jacqueline and they're trying to get her to get the, po- drink the poison, you know, they're like, we thought you wanted to kill yourself. Like, just, just drink the damn poison. And she's like, no, mm-hmm. you know, and it isn't really until she's just driven, you know, past the point of no return, uh, kind of thing that it, it clearly becomes her only option, right? Just be pushed into it, despite the fact that she was already, you wouldn't think you'd need that much of a push for someone who's depressive, but that's that's how she is.
0: So the, the writer of that article, Anna Borges, kind of describes it as like as if you're in the ocean, and some days it's you can just float forever and you're fine, and then other days, you know, the waves just keep crashing down on you and it might just be easier to just start to drift underneath the water. And I thought what was very interesting is, like, if you just look at Jean Brooks's performance, just, like, not how it's going on screen, how it fits into the themes or anything, but you're just shown, like, clips of her performance, it's actually fairly, like, passive and a mm-hmm. little ghostly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she seems like she's already dead in some way.
0: Yeah. And then it's kind of odd because you hear these stories about people talking about Jacqueline as, like if you've met her, you'll remember her. Yeah, you,
1: would, you wouldn't You would forget her. Like, Mary, Mary has this image of her sister in her mind as being, like, someone who lights up a room.
0: Exactly. So it's very interesting to see that, like, when we do meet Jacqueline, that's not what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, Mary has that same effect of lighting up a room. You know, she's inspired Jason the poet to write again. Everyone
1: instantly likes her.
0: And wants to help her yeah. work pro bono to, like, find her sister. It reminded me of how, like, I sometimes feel with my own mental illness. Where, like, that hopeful optimism of Mary is, like, one side of the coin. And then the other side is Jacqueline's, like, ghostly depression. And I thought it was striking a chord or a fear in me of Greg, you know, loving Jacqueline not really fully able to love her, and then just immediately falling in love with Mary.
1: Yeah, because he's prob- Mary is probably closer to the version of Jacqueline he fell in love with, is the thing, right?
0: And it's just striking that fear of, like, well, they only love a part of me.
1: Mm-hmm. I think what this movie does a very good job of doing is showing that people who are depressed or people who have suicidal thoughts aren't like that all the time, mm-hmm. right? That, like... I think the image people have in their minds of someone who's depressed is like Eeyore. Sure. Right? And it's like, people can't be like that all the time. You know, people aren't one emotion all the time. Um, So you, you know, you get these things where someone commits suicide and people go, oh, you know, I can't believe it. Like, they were always smiling and laughing and and having a good time. Like, you know, it's like, well, that's the side of that person that you saw, right? Um, I looked up the exact language of the production code. I went and, like, read it again. Sure. And this movie does not violate the production code in How? letter. It does not violate it in letter. Just, just in spirit. spirit. Like, for example, the thing with Jacqueline and Francis, where it is heavily implied they are lesbians, right? The movie gets away with that so easily, because Ward is her husband, and there's just this, like, very assumed heterosexuality, right? People are assumed straight until proven gay. The only implications we get are that Francis is saying, you know, I can't do that to Jacqueline. I love her. And then she's the one who's like, you know, Jacqueline, no, get out of here. So, you know, in the context of the 40s, an audience could easily just look at that as like, oh, they were very good friends. And we don't see them like kiss. We don't see them touch. We don't really see them ever interact. And the letter of the production code is like, sexual aberrations will not be shown. Sure. Right. So I it's guess like they
0: did not show that.
1: Right. So if you're just talking about an emotion and you're just being really vague about the specifics of that emotion, like you can get away with it. Um, the same thing with the suicide. The language around suicide. I mean, I still don't know how this movie did it, but the quote is: "Suicide as a solution to problems is to be discouraged as morally questionable unless absolutely necessary for the plot." Which it is the plot. It's yeah. the whole plot. Yeah. Um, So, again, like, not violating the letter, definitely violating the spirit. Uh, There's nothing in the production code about you can't have Satanists. I feel like it's because it's so unthinkable that, like, (laughs) you would even do that. That it's like, there's nothing in the production code that's like you can't show people worshipping Satan. And I feel like it's just, you know, the Catholic priests who wrote the production code just never thought anyone would even do that. The only thing about religion, it says in the production code, is that you have to be respectful of everyone's religion and depict them in a non-stereotypical way. I,
0: which, I mean, I guess they did right? that. But yes, that
1: they're is. very respectful of the Satanists in this movie. Yeah. The biggest thought I had about this movie coming out of it is it feels like it's at the very least 20 years ahead of its time, if not 30.
0: I mean, I, you can say that about any of the Luton films.
1: Sure, but there was something specific about the theme of paranoia in this one that is so better suited to the second half of the 20th century. Like, think about if you were told this movie was made in 1963 or 1973. You know, I think about movies like Mirage or The Trial or The Conversation or Dark City. All the stuff in this movie where Mary goes to talk to someone and that, that, that person never existed and then walk into a room and there's someone there and then you turn around and turn around again and suddenly they're gone and, you know, all those kind of feelings early on when you don't know what's happening and the paladists are just this unknown secret force that's kind of manipulating things feels so much like those conspiracy movies that come later. You know, stuff like um, Seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with Rock Hudson and stuff. Like, just... You know, it's very Twilight zone in a way that is totally not what horror movies were like in the 40s. Because horror movies in the 40s are, this mad scientist is going to put some sex hormones in this gorilla. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think the last time we saw anything like this was Chamber of Horrors where you had the Canadian who goes to find her family in Britain and gets told like, by people that they never existed and things like that, but it's all because people are actually after the family money or whatever. I don't remember
0: this movie.
1: It didn't go on the list. Um, oh.
0: Oh, is this the seven locks or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yes, okay.
1: the door with seven locks. That's right.
0: Yeah, I think the fact that this movie is ahead of its time, even in the themes that it's talking about, I think is probably why it didn't do well at the box office. Um, yeah,
1: I just don't think people in 1943 were into...
0: What this is doing.
1: Yeah, themes about depression and paranoia. Yeah. Right? I think even if this was a movie in 1947, it might do a little bit better with stuff like that. Yeah. But mid-World War II, like, this isn't what we're here for, you know?
0: Yeah, we need to be in the Cold War in order for this to really have a a societal impact.
1: Yeah, like, paranoia works well, you know, in the 50s, because we're paranoid about the communists, or in the 60s and 70s, we're paranoid about, like, our... like, the American government, right? Like, our side. Or the Soviets, but, like, you get that shift, right, where people stop trusting the government, and then you get to, like, the 90s, which is just conspiracy city, you know, where, like, everyone is out to get you all the time. Um, It's just this movie came out at the wrong time.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, we keep saying that this movie Seventh Victim is such a modern kind of movie despite happening in 1943, and I think a big factor of that is its themes. And we we haven't really like we've kind of implied um that there's like homosexual undertones going on here. Um I don't think it's undertones, I think that's the the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we've implied it. Certainly the movie implies, right? The movie doesn't quite come out and say it. Yeah. Um, but we haven't really gone into a lot of depth with it yet. You know, the the movie's doing a lot of things that, as we've said, like, are just wild that they got past the Breen office. This is one of those movies where you have to work backwards, mm-hmm. right? Because the movie never sits you down and gives you the straight line of the cause and effect Not being with Jacqueline the whole time is a big part of that because we don't know why she's doing what she's doing or what her sort of feelings about other people are. And we talked about how we kind of know how everyone else feels about her more than the reverse.
0: Yeah, like there's that one old Dark House movie that's like pretty much near at the bottom of the list. Um, where it's a mystery, and then at the end, the police officer sits us down and is like, here's what happened. Yeah. We don't
1: get a, here's what happened in this movie. Right, exactly. And the way that you learn information in this movie, you're given all these pieces of information, and when you lay them out, you can say, oh, I see what's going on here. Yeah. But the movie doesn't lay them out. The movie wraps them all up in mystery under mystery under mystery and weird shenanigans and
0: shenanigans.
1: Yeah. Satan, Satanist shenanigans, Satanist shenanigans. Exactly. Um, well, Ben, do you want to tell us what happened? All right. Come into the parlor with the other suspects. Sure. And I will lay it out for you. We
0: all stabbed them.
1: Yes, that's right. The pieces of information that we get in kind of the order that we get them
0: Mm
1: -hmm. are Jacqueline is suicidal. Mm hmm. There's something about Jacqueline that a man can't get a hold of. That line stood out to me, too. Jacqueline's depressed and seeing a psychiatrist. Jacqueline's married to Ward, which, corollary, she has not taken his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and has
0: not t- told her sister.
1: Right. Jacqueline also never seems to really have any interest in being with Ward. Like, once we actually meet her, she's not, like, tearfully embracing Ward, you know, like, oh, my love and, like, making out and being like, I've, you've saved me. Like, she's hiding from him, because he doesn't know where he, she is, just as much as she's hiding from everyone else, and she's pretty subdued by the time we see her. We never really get her feelings about Ward. We know how Ward feels about her. Um, and then we know that she joined a Satanist cult, which, you know, who hasn't, and, you know, just experimented in college. Um... <laughs> and we learn that one of the other members who is also an employee of hers or ex-employee, Francis, is in love with her. We never really hear Jacqueline speak on this topic, but we hear Frances say that she loves her, or actually we don't even hear Francis say it. It's actually um Twilight Thanks. Zone guy, Rod Serling, who says, "We all know you loved her, Francis."
0: Yeah. Well, Francis says something along the lines of like, "The only time I was ever, ever happy, happy was, was with you. you,"
1: which honestly like The line where he says, we all know you love her, Francis. That's a line where, yeah, I could see you trying to play that off as like a platonic friendship thing to a censor. But yeah, Francis like tearfully breaking down and saying like, the only time I was ever happy was when I was with you. Like, if that was a man saying that to a woman or a woman saying that to a man, there would be no ambiguity at all about Mm -hmm. what that means.
0: Yeah. I actually read a breakdown of the scene where Jacqueline is being, you know, coerced to drink the poison. And um, someone, I forget who this was online, but was looking at where Jacqueline's looking.
1: Oh, and sure. And it's consistently to Francis. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you have these bits of information, and when you take them together, mm-hmm. right, you have to work backwards. So we have to say, you know, if we work backwards with what the movie tells us, here's what we learn. mm mm-hmm. Francis and Jacqueline are in love. Mm-hmm. Uh Jacqueline's part of a Satanist cult that is an underground secret society that operates out of Greenwich Village, so there's that. Jacqueline doesn't really seem to care about Ward, but is married to him, uh, while Ward can't quite seem to get her to actually be like interested in him, despite the fact that they are married. Jacqueline is depressed. Jacqueline is suicidal. That's basically the opposite of the order we learn everything in, and I think that paints you a picture that if it wasn't clear in 1943 is very clear in 2019, which is Jacqueline's in love with Francis, but that's not cool in 1943 America. So, you know, you, you deny those feelings, you press them aside, you try to get with a man cause that's what you're supposed to do. You meet this guy, you get married but there's no love in that marriage, you're unhappy, you're depressed, you go to see a psychiatrist to try and make that better. That doesn't really work because Dr. Judd, I don't think, is very good at his job. You join some Satanists, uh, or maybe you did that earlier. Maybe that's where you met Francis. I'm not sure what the order is on that one. But rather, Francis is in that organization, for sure. You know, and then you accidentally tell your psychiatrist about the Satanists and then they're out to kill you. But at some point along the line, you become suicidal (laughs) and uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I think other than the Satanist part, that's a story that I think a lot of people could identify as indicative of LGBT lives in the 1940s. Right?
0: Yeah. You brought up, like, a little bit of a cause and effect here that I just want to, like, kind of press pause on. The way you describe things, it sounds like being put into this position or of having to have this basically lavender marriage Mm -hmm. um, is what makes Jacqueline suicidal. But Dr. Judd says something along the lines of like she's always been this way.
1: Well, Ward tells us she's always been this way.
0: But I, I just want to bring up that like, you know, it's not like
1: yeah, mental health isn't as easy as cause and effect. It's not yep. just like, my dad died, now I'm sad, so now I'm suicidal or something, right? It's yeah. It's,
0: but I, I you guess have what deep-seated
1: I'm, issues from earlier kind of deal.
0: What I'm trying to bring up, though, is that, like, two things here. So first is, if Jacqueline has been dealing with repressing her own sexuality, mm. that would have been going on for much longer than just, you know, the last six months or eight months or whatever since since she joined this Satanist cult, yeah. cult, that sexual repression would have contributed to those feelings of suicide throughout her whole life.
1: Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean that's a that's a good way to be depressed is to A good way uh, to be depressed? Like good and like like the easiest, most efficient way to become depressed is is to definitely try to repress an entire uh part of your uh being um, you know, then, that's, that's like a speed run technique for those <laughs> who are looking for them.
0: And then the second thing is we've seen the writer, um, one of the writers of this movie also wrote Cat People. Do It Bodine. And Cat People's very interesting in how it talks about mental illness as well. So I wonder if they're doing a similar kind of thing here where they're talking about mental illness. Jacqueline's ever-present depression is like a way to talk about her ever-present Lesbian identity.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things, so we hear two different things, one from Ward and one from Judd. Well, they're not different. They they walk hand in hand. They're different in the way that, like, an apple is different from an orange, but not different in that they're contradictory. Yeah, yeah. Ward tells us that Jacqueline's kind of been like this as long as he's known her, and that, like, it's always kind of difficult to get her, like, excited about things or involved in things or whatever, um, and that she's she's always been like this. Which I think is very telling, because that tells you that this wasn't, you know... If this was, I think, not about homosexuality, right? If this was a more traditional movie, it would be like, Oh yes, when I first met her, we were so happy together, and everything Mm -hmm. was great. And then she joined these Satanists, and now everything's bad. And that's not really the case. In fact, logic suggests she was with the Satanists before she was with Ward. Because Francis is in the Satanists, right? Yeah. So from Ward we learn that she's always been unhappy... And from Judd, we learn that the reason she joined the Satanists was that she was always looking for ways to feel alive, essentially, right? Ways to feel um, experiences, ways to, to feel something. And if you think of someone who has repressed sexuality, their romantic interests, you know, their ability to connect with other people because the people they want to connect with they can't, it would make sense that that person would be looking for outlets to express themselves or ways to try and feel something in a different way, mm-hmm. right? So kind of without telling us why Jacqueline's like that, the things that Jacqueline is do fit the hypothesis, you know?
0: Definitely. And
1: it's, it's this interesting case of walking around the outside of the issue, right? Where, you know, if I were to say to you... you can You can say beating around the bush. <laughs> I didn't... I wasn't... The, even thinking that. Uh, okay. but you're, and,
0: and the pun levels yes, here are, I, are astronomical. I, yeah. It's great.
1: Okay. If I were to <laughs> say to you, like, this is an object that I bought. Mm-hmm. And it has four wheels. and It has four doors. And it has windows. And it has an engine. And it has chairs. But I never say it's a car. Yeah. That's kind of what this movie is doing, right? <laughs> sure. Like, it's like... Yeah, so Francis loves Jacqueline, and the marriage Jacqueline's in is unhappy, and Jacqueline's depressed, and Jacqueline's suicidal, and Jacqueline's looking for a way to feel something because she doesn't feel anything, and the only thing that anyone really feels for Jacqueline is, like, everyone falls in love with her, but, like, Ward's never felt any love from her for some reason, and, like, I don't think Judd's getting any love from her, even though that's what other people suspect. Yeah. But it just never says, like, Jacqueline's gay. Yeah. Right.
0: Um, I think that this aspect of the movie probably comes from Val Lewton.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We mentioned this in like the Cat People episode where we give a bit more of like the background of Val Lewton. Mm-hmm. But he is the nephew of actress Ala Nazimova. Yes. Who is um, or, or was openly gay. Um, originated the phrase, uh, she's part of the sewing circle as code for an actress who is gay or bi. She even had a lavender marriage from 1912 to 25. And at this point, 1943, she's living with her female companion, Gleska Marshall. Mm -hmm. You have that pretty strong influence on someone growing up where that's just...
1: Well, and, and it's worth saying that Luton grew up in a home with his mom and his aunt, right? Yeah. That, like yes, this was his aunt, but it wasn't like an aunt where like, oh yeah, she's off in this other city and that's your weird old aunt and we never see her. It's like, no, 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 he was raised by this person, right?
0: Yeah, and I think that really informs how he sees the world.
1: This movie, you know, we talked about how maybe this movie would have been more effective as horror if it had been from Jacqueline's point of view the whole way through, like Cat People. We talked about how maybe they didn't do that because it would be too similar to Cat People. Mm -hmm. But the other thing, the mystery structure with Mary being the protagonist gives them is the ability to just obfuscate the crap out of the story so that because they're talking about stuff that you weren't really allowed to talk about, they can just distract you with the fact that it's a mystery, that we're not really talking about it, and hey, here's Satan. Like, (laughs) you know, so it's kind of distracting you in a bit. But I think, you know, if you knew what to look for, you can see it in the movie, right? The movie's not, like, it's not a stretch, right? It's not like, oh, you know, his lapel is a metaphor for the way he feels inside or something, right? It's, no, they say it in dialogue. It's just the movie's confusing, so maybe you didn't notice. Like, (laughs) you know? For sure. Yeah.
0: So with a movie that is 20 or so years kind of ahead of its time, but does have its own internal problems. Like, I stand behind the editing could be better. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. Thank you. (gasps) Actually, that that feels nice. Um, Because I I worry sometimes that I get too, like, hooked on a a particular problem of a film.
1: No, like, the movie, you can feel watching the movie that it has problems. You can feel like something isn't quite working here. Part of it, because of the way we do this show... We're mm-hmm. seeing the movies in context, right, of what similar movies of similar genre of similar time are like. And this is so different from that. You know, mm-hmm. if if this movie had editing like this, but was in color and starred, you know, people who act in movies today, I'm not sure that editing would feel so disjointed because editing now is so, like, quick and disjointed and all over the place. That's but in, in the context of movies of the 1940s, you're like, wait, What? We just—you can't intercut two scenes together. That's not <laughs> how scenes work. You have to show him exiting the building and getting in his car and driving to the other building and Continuity getting out of his editing, car guy, and going on. to the other building.
0: Get <laughs> your shit
1: together. Yeah.
0: Go watch *Casablanca* and mm-hmm. come back and edit mm-hmm. this shit. Yeah. So where where do you think we should rank this? If it's something that we we haven't really ever seen before.
1: Mm, sure. Well, I've got. I don't know, kind of a big range here.
0: Oh, my range is a little small, so you go first.
1: Hopefully they're related. Uh, My first thought was, I like this better than the Leopard Man. Even if the Leopard Man maybe doesn't have the lack of polish this has, this feels ambitious, right? The Mm. Seventh Victim feels like it's trying to do something new and maybe kind of stumbling, where the Leopard Man was really playing it safe but doing like a really good job of it. You know what I mean? Sure. So I I like this better. So my floor is number 24, The Leopard Man. My ceiling is, my next thought was, the other kind of satanic movie we have on the list, which is 1934's The Black Cat, which also is like a little bit fractured.
0: Yeah, because of post stuff happening.
1: But I think I like the version of Satanism in this movie better because the Satanists in the black cat are just this kind of vague culty boogeyman boogeyman. Yeah. Stereotypical thing. That's just kind of there to tell us that like Boris Karloff is evil and doing fucked up shit. The Satanists in this movie are so much more interesting in the fact that they are regular everyday people who have just committed themselves to evil Because you can't prove that good exists in the world, but you can prove that evil exists, and that evil has power. So, that's what we're going to be a part of. Um, I just find that way more interesting. Um, But, you look above Black Cat to, say, Island of Lost Souls, or Phantom Carriage, or any of the movies above that, and it's like, right, but these movies don't have the stumbling that Seventh Victim has. So that's my ceiling would be number 7, to put it above The Black Cat below Island of Lost Souls. So that's my range, 7 to 24.
0: My range is below yours. Okay. I wasn't really sure where to start looking with this film, but I knew, at the very least, it is better than Captive Wild Woman (laughs) from last week or so, and that's at number 37. Right. So that's my floor. (laughs) So I knew it was at least better than that. Right. And then I started kind of going up. I got hooked on The Black Room at okay. 32. Because that movie is so well put together, and it's yes. like a puzzle that finally comes together. Like, you found the last piece, and you put it in, and you can take a photo of it and share it on social media. And it's so satisfying compared to this film, which feels... You know, I see the puzzle. I get it. it the the pieces are a little more fuzzy
1: to me. What this movie feels like, because I think all the pieces fit in this movie, and all the questions get answered, and everything makes sense. But this movie feels like, you know when someone's telling you a story, and they aren't good at telling stories? (laughs) So, So you
0: mean like when I tell you stories? Well,
1: just like when someone, you know, starts a story, and then midway through, they're like, oh, sorry, to understand this bit, you have to understand that, like, this guy did this thing. And they start jumping around, and it all makes sense in their brain. But by the time they're finished saying it, you've become so confused by their jumble of words that you're not quite sure, like, what you were supposed to get out of that. Sure. That's kind of what this feels like. I think the people behind it are just as intelligent as the people behind The Black Room, but I also think this movie's a lot more complicated and stumbles on its on what it's doing, right? So I, I see what you're saying.
0: Yeah. You make a really good point, though, about The Leopard Man um, being more safe. Coming together pretty well, it's also really hard because the f- horror in seventh victim because I do believe that this is still a horror movie yes it's not a phantom of the Up of nineteen forty three situation you know yeah um it's horror is of paranoia, but mainly it feels like the horror of like nihilism overcoming you it's the fear of depression
1: yeah it's 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 the same fear this movie depicts. Someone drowning very slowly, basically. And the thing about it for me is that's so much more effective than what was in The Leopard Man. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that Luton keeps going back to this idea of people being stalked Mm -hmm. and kind of fearing the thing that's stalking them and feeling like, you know, something's behind them or could come out of them out of the shadows. And in Cat People... The people who were being stalked were, you know, our young romantic leads, right? Your typical people to put in danger. Yeah. And in *I Walked with a Zombie*, it's you know our our uh, lead female protagonist again. But in *Leopard Man*, you know, it is the the women who get killed. But then in the finale, it's the killer himself, and they try to play this telltale heart thing where he's having all the paranoia, but it doesn't really work because the audience isn't sympathetic to that character. Like, we aren't in his shoes. We never get to be in his shoes. We don't care. Um, it's just a clever thing our heroes are doing, right? It's more effective, if for horror anyway, to, you know, be the mouse being chased by the cat than to be the cat chasing the mouse? Like, that's yeah. not very scary.
0: Yeah, for So sure. I
1: think, you know, the the horror in Seventh Victim works better. And this movie... This movie didn't get any screams out of me. It didn't get any jumps out of me. But this movie did startle me quite a few times. And there's a lot of stuff from this movie that's going to stick with me for a really long time. Mm -hmm. In a way that, like, you know, Leopard Man is already kind of fading into the back of my (laughs) mind. Like, I, I remember Castanets. A lot of Castanets. Yeah. So Leopard Man is 24. Black Room is 32. Looking at stuff kind of in between there, um I have to tell you that it's a bunch of movies that I have no doubt that this is better than
0: yeah, like, I would agree
1: man, they could not hang devil Command the ghoul the go- <laughs> dr jekyll mr hyde forty one so do you want to just put it above leopard man below vampire
0: I think that's that's a really good spot because vampire also has a feeling of like paranoia.
1: It's, it's, it's also doing the nightmare thing of, I just went down this hallway, but I've now turned around and everything's different kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And it's really, really well done. Um, so I would be comfortable with that for sure.
1: Yeah. And Vampyr certainly is more, I don't know if coherent is the right word, but like (laughs) it is certainly more of a piece. It's certainly like more, um, consistent. Right? You can, you know, you can feel that no one has fucked with Vampyr. For sure. You know, if you're confused, it's because the director wants you to be confused.
0: They're both Catholic. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay, so entering the list at number 24 is The Seventh Victim from 1943, directed by Mark Robeson.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, drop us a line there. You're also welcome to send in any questions, concerns, corrections. Hey, you missed this film. Any of those types of comments, you can do so on our site, or email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or talk to us on Twitter at underscore scream scene.
1: scream scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us wherever podcasts are found using the RSS feed. Please leave a rating or a review on services that allow it. Uh, it algorithmically helps other people find the show. Or just tell people about it directly, either in real life or on social media, whatever you're more comfortable with. Another way you can help out the show is by going to patreon.com slash uh, where you can become a monthly patron uh, for as little as a dollar a month. At the $1 level, we will thank you on the show. Uh, at the $5 level, you get weekly bonus audio, uh, deleted bits from past episodes that might be, say, interesting parts of trivia that just didn't have enough to do with the movie, or uh, goofs that you know, didn't quite make the cut, or just us <laughs> screwing something up real bad, at the $10 level you get access to horror short fiction that I write that doesn't show up anywhere else. So if you're interested in any of that, that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast.
0: What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Well, Sarah, next week we are bouncing back to the other main horror studio of the 40s, Universal. Universal their second attempt at a sequel to one of their main horror franchises. It's 1943's Son of Dracula, starring Lon Chaney Jr. as Alucard. No! Get it? Alucard?
0: We've seen this before. And it's fun!
1: Is it, though? It
0: has fun moments. Oh, Okay, well that'll be next week.
1: See you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!